Hello and welcome to this, the 35th episode of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus O'Macanally, artistic director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I'm a 15-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And this week we are not again coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. We are, in fact, coming to you from lovely Ballinasloe once again because it is the middle of the night. I've just come from uh, another sold-out show at the Abbey with uh, Tom Murphy's The House and I am now in my hotel room putting together a magical little podcast for you in the middle of the night so that it'll be there for you when you all wake up on your shiny Thursday mornings. Um, Despite the fact that I'll be getting an alarm clock call at about 6 o'clock in the morning to get up and shoot a whole rake of scenes tomorrow before going back and doing another show tomorrow night because that's how much I love you. Uh, Yeah, crazy times here but you know what? If the worst thing that ever happens to you is that you're doing a show in the Abbey and a TV show by day. That's not a bad complaint. We will keep it moving on. So as ever, we are bringing this to you free of charge. We have promised that we'll never ever charge for these podcasts, but as ever... Each week, we want you to put your money back into Irish theatre. And as you all know by now, the simplest way to do that is to go and buy yourself some tickets. Something I've been doing for the Abbey Theatre a hell of a lot over the last couple of weeks. It's like a drug dealing racket. They give you the money in wages, you hand it straight back to them in ticket fees to bring in your friends and family and all kinds of exciting people. Um, so don't do go and do that. Go and get yourself some tickets from somewhere if that's uh, within your reach this month or this week. If not, maybe look at uh, maybe fundit.ie or one of the crowdsourcing websites where you can go and support people from uh, as little as a fiver. And there are always great rewards in return for those donations. And of course, there are many ways you can support without having to put your hand in your pocket. Tell people about this podcast, raise our profile, we'll raise their profile. Everything goes around in a magical circle. Um, You can uh, tell people about it in person, share the link on Facebook, retweet on Twitter, go and subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes. That helps us out an awful lot. Give us a review over on iTunes. That really, really helps. Go back and listen to all our other episodes. Um, And even just click to rate us on their five-star rating system over there. You can, of course, follow us, Rise Productions, on Facebook. We are facebook.com forward slash Rise Productions Ireland. Or you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Rise Ireland. And so that brings us to this week's guest. And this is one that you guys have all been clamoring for for quite some time. And so you ask, we answer, we are giving you what you want. And this week we have the phenomenal Ms. Eleanor Methvin as a guest here. Um, And I'm kind of excited about this because... As I've been talking about kind of various shows throughout the uh, the last whatever seven or eight months as we've been doing this podcast, uh, it's nice as we built up a body of work here with the, and a kind of a collection of podcasts. A show comes up and it's got three or four people who've already been part of it. And uh, with Eleanor joining the gang of podcast people, it means that for the house that we're working on at the Abbey at the moment, we have Declan Conlon, Carl Shields, Frank Laverty, Kathy Belton, Dara Kelly, Tara Furlong. Um, I think there's about kind of six or seven of us uh, from the cast now who have been. Uh, on board with the podcast and it's, I'm delighted to have Eleanor on she is a remarkable lady such a phenomenal actress um, just watching her is, is such a masterclass I mean, the structure of the house is that it's kind of the show is split in kind of two halves as such there's two two different strands of a story running through it there's the lads down in the pub and then there's the ladies up in the big house and uh, because I'm playing one of the lads never the twain shall meet I mean some of the other lads go up to build a wall or some people go up to uh, the funeral that happens but um, but I never get to see that world so throughout rehearsals I was seeing very little of the ladies uh, and then finally as you get towards the end of rehearsals and you start doing run-throughs and stuff um, suddenly you see what the girls have been doing in your absence and like they're just phenomenal performances there and Eleanor is uh, you know amongst a, a whole group of amazing performances just 
astonishing. It's amazing work that she's doing. She is, uh, she's brilliant. Um, and a great lady to sit down and have a chat to. So engaged in the business, so engaged in kind of the politics of the business and stuff. Um, a really, really great lady to chat to and a really interesting lady to chat to. So look, let's go and let you in on that chat. Here she is, the remarkable Miss Eleanor Methven. The wonderful Eleanor Methven. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. This is a happy day for me. <laughs> So let us do, as we every week go back to the very beginning and say, what was the spark for you for a career in the theatre? Why did it occur to you at all in the first place? Um, yeah, that's a bit of a mystery, I suppose, is with a lot of people. There's no background in the family, certainly. Um, I suppose I just remember, you know, from primary school, getting the chance to sort of go on stage and do something for, I think it was the opening of the new primary school. I must have been about oh, nine, eight, nine. I just loved it. I made people laugh and uh, it was the best feeling in the world and I just thought this is where I swim, this is something I seem to be able to do. Um, I'd already seen when I was six I saw Audrey Hepburn in My Fair Lady and was taken up to Belfast to see that in the great plush cinema with red carpets and brass rails and all the rest of it and I just remember looking up at her and thinking ah oh, that's so fantastic, yeah. I want to see that, I want to be that and um, the next year then we went to The Sound of Music and I thought no, Julie Andrews is the nun. So, you know, I'm happy to say that actually it was the character that interested me, not wow. just what Audrey was doing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I just, you know, fiddled about in primary school. And then when I got to secondary school, there wasn't any, you know, formal drama. It wasn't taught as a subject in good old Protestant six counties north of Ireland. You were supposed to go and be a teacher or a doctor or a lawyer. Um, but we did do, you know, school productions, that sort of thing. And I had an aptitude for it, so... That's how that happened, but uh, I wanted to go and be an actress, much to everybody's horror, my parents and all the rest of it, and uh, I couldn't get a grant to go to a drama school. They were um, given out by the local library boards in those days, and mine didn't. They wouldn't give it for anything like that. They'd only give it for academic right, stuff, okay. so great to my parents, great um, joy. They said, well, you know, go and get a degree, so I went off and decided, you know, do English as a major in drama minor and I absolutely hated it and left at Christmas and um, <laughs> said okay I'll go to my second choice the next year which was Kent and in the meantime oh I'd been in the National Youth Theatre at the British one right okay um, for that summer and it was my dad really who said uh, look they've formed this new they've built a new theatre up in Coleraine the Riverside and they've got a theatre company a TIE Right. They're an education company. Why don't you write to them and ask them if you can you know clean up behind the bar or sweep the stage or so I did and um, they happened to have two equity cards to give away because in those days you had to, you know, there was yes, a close shop. Um, so I auditioned for one and I got it and I went straight in at 18. Wow. I never managed to get back to formal education of any kind <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> and just trained on the job, really, I suppose, wow. which I'm sure shows. Well, I mean, let's, let's talk about that then because we've spoken to people who've had as many different routes into the business yeah. as possible over this. I mean, if you had a magic wand and looking back on it now, mm. would you say, I wish I had three years to make my mistakes in private? Or do yeah. you go, do you know what, learn on the job. Ultimately, you need to be in front of an audience to do what you're going to do anyway. Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't actually think you can teach anybody to be a good actor. I, I honestly don't think you can do that. What I do think drama school does do for you is, uh, like any um, third level education, it gives you time to play yeah. without the, the competition of having to be up for jobs all the time. Also, well, <clears throat> what did actually happen to me in a TIE company, but it happens at drama school as well. You can get to play, you know, when you're when you're 19, you can be playing somebody who's 60 and that sort of thing. And I did get that because yeah. I was, you know, a character actress very early on. <laughs> um, played the Widow Quinn at the age of 19, which I'm sure was definitive. Thank God it was never <laughs> filmed. Um, but yeah, no, I, 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 it, it, 
it should the best of it should also prepare you for the business um and i'm not sure how many of them do that um it's it's a it's an enormously mentally tough profession i think hugely mentally tough um and just preparing you for you know working with an agent and and how to the main thing is how to manage your downtime that's the main thing it's not when you're working that's easy it's how to manage your downtime and what you do with yourself during that time well that's something i'm kind of coming to realize more and more as I, as I kind of look at the business generally and, I, and it's for me one of the big differences between being a pro and being an amateur people Completely. are on the, on the amateur drama yeah. thing that's fine and you're doing it as a hobby and it's mm. nice and whatever else but there is there is something in the commitment that mm-hmm. you step up and say no this is how I'm going to do it this yeah. is how I'm going to pay the bills I'm Correct. Gonna, you know uh, devote myself to this fully mm-hmm. That other people either don't have the bravery or have more sense or, or, or yeah, whatever. whatever, but whatever. Well, they don't have the need. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there, there's definitely a need there. There's no doubt about it because the you know the rewards, particularly in theatre, and particularly when you start off, are, are not good financially. Yeah. So, but people, I think, who are actors, I mean, if, if you're not, you will drop out. Yeah. Um, but if you are, you you get very unhappy when you're not doing it. Um, mm. It's the only thing that's that's going to help you live your life. So I'm afraid, you know, that's the way it is. It sounds <laughs> terrible, but I, yeah, I, I believe that to be true. Yeah. So talk to me then about about those early days and working up in wonderful six county Protestant yeah. northern ireland i mean <laughs> what was the theater scene like up there at the time was there much to see outside of belfast maybe no not really um the company i was with as i said we're, we were based at the riverside which was the newest theater on the island and still love it it's a great yeah. theater um and we toured the secondary schools in the province as she's known um, so I was playing to people who were about a year younger than myself. Um, and we do a Christmas show and we do a, a summer season as well. It was run by a guy called Tony Newby Lee. Um, he'd been brought over from England and he brought a few of his own English actors that he'd had in his own company in Cumbria with him. Um, so I did get to work with people who were quite experienced in the early days. Uh, and it was great fun mm-hmm. touring around. Um, the only, there were two really other theatre companies. There was the Lyric in Belfast. And there were the Ulster Actors Company, which worked out at the Arts Theatre in Belfast. Okay. And after a couple of seasons with Interplay, which was the name of the TIE, Tony just basically threw me out of the nest and said, no, you've got to go to the rep and, and go and try your hand there. Right. So Mary O'Malley was running the uh, Lyric at that time, and I went to Town Avenue down here in Dublin and auditioned for Mary, and uh, she took me under her wing. So I, I did a couple of seasons at the Lyric, um, which in those days was was coming out of its pro-am thing. Okay. I mean, Mary was a, she's an incredible woman and she founded the theatre really in her own back garden in Derevolge Avenue in Belfast and had the, one of those women who just had the power to make things happen. She and Pierce, her husband, created the Lyric Theatre and uh, brought the people who'd been acting in, a, in an amateur basis with them. And out of that came fine actors like Louis Rolston and Joe McPartland and J.G. Devlin, people like that. Um, yeah, when when I would have started there, it would have been the late seventies. Um, before that, in the group theatre, um, Jimmy Ellis, etc., would have been doing great work, um, doing uh, Sam Thompson's Over the Bridge and and quite controversial plays like that. But that had gone by then. It's in the centre of town, and we were ten years into the troubles, as they're known. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, the lyric was it was. Each season had to open up with Yeats. That was there in their charter. And it's just, I mean, I think he's a wonderful poet, but I just, uh, sorry, it's not for me, the plays. And they were mainly done by academic directors who'd come in and be very oh, interested course. in doing no theatre yeah. and that sort of thing. Um, and also then you would maybe not start rehearsal till two o'clock in the afternoon because the guy who was playing the lead was a primary school teacher and he wouldn't be ready until then. Right, and, okay. I ju- and I'd come from a TIE where things were actually taken quite seriously and yeah. professionally and I find this all a bit, 
dissatisfactory. So after about, f- I'd been in the business maybe four years, um, it was kind of looking around and thinking, is this it? Is this mm. all there is? And, and and very aware that I was untrained and really didn't see very much. And I was living in Belfast by that time and there were a group of us, mainly women around, who were deeply frustrated at the, the not just the lack of work, but the quality of work. Okay. Um, and, you know, I played loads of Nora's and Kathleen's. It was just all the Irish canon. You were usually somebody's wife, somebody's daughter, even somebody's mother, but very rarely the somebody. And yeah. uh, that began to bother us, uh, being sort of uh, in the middle of 70s feminism, or certainly I was influenced by it. Um, so it was myself, Mary Jones, and uh, Carol Scanlon, as she was then, like Carol Moore, um, and two others, Brenda Winter and Maureen McCauley, and we formed um, a theatre company called Charabang and didn't know what we were doing. And right. uh, if we had known, I don't know if we'd have done it. <laughs> but uh, it took off in a huge way, and that, in a way, protected me from the vagaries of being an actress in your 20s, because that can be very, very difficult. Yeah. Um, there's really, the, the roles, certainly in those days, weren't great, and there weren't very many of them. So in a way, I was um, sheltered from that, though off my own making, but uh, I'm deeply grateful for it. Yeah. So I was with Charabang from the age of 23 until, oh, mid-30s. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And talk to me then about, so you say that, you know, you're looking around and, and the, like you said, you were playing someone's mother or someone's yeah. sister or someone's daughter mm-hmm. or whatever. So what, on a practical level, what did you guys do to try and, you know... Address the balance there. Well, the first thing we did was we went to Martin Lynch, was the up and coming playwright in Belfast at that time. He'd just done Dockers and the interrogation of Ambrose Fogarty. And uh, we said, Well, you, could you give us some sketches and we'll just take them around pubs and clubs just because we're going mad and yeah. we just want to keep our hand in. And he said, well, funnily enough, they're all written for men. Um, and he suggested that we write them ourselves. And we thought this was hilarious. I mean, nobody had ever said that to us before. But Martin was very encouraging. And we had workshops on a Sunday night, that sort of thing. And it became obvious that Mary had a real talent for dialogue. Yeah. And she became the chief writer. Um, and we co-wrote with Martin the first play, Lay Up Your Ends. We had a huge grand scheme that we were going to write the history of Belfast women from the ni- 1900 to, you know, yeah. up to the present day. We honed in on this very little-known mill strike, though the mill strike was huge. It was in 1911. It wasn't written about much because the same people who owned the newspapers owned the mills. Of course. Um, but it did uh, result in the first branch of the, um, the first women's branch of the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union being formed in Belfast, and uh, Connolly organised the women. Wow. So we were, yeah, in the bowels of Belfast Library researching all this stuff. Charabang really became an education for us all, never mind anything else. Yeah. Uh, researching our own history and uh, we concentrated on women's history but also on working class women's history that voice that hadn't been heard and it became developed into um, uh, addressing that balance on the stage but also in a way explaining the north to ourselves and to our fellow northerners and that sort of thing we were very lucky that it it went further than that and yeah. toured internationally well that's i mean that's an interesting because at that time was it possible to be making theater in the north that wasn't political either with a big p or a small p most theater wasn't political at all right. uh, that was that was the thing um we were the first me field day had already established themselves but and they're so different from charabang that it's hilarious you know they were all a all men and be the great and the good and there we were just this bunch of women um with you know very little track record behind us and trade union members on our board um and we 
we were really in that way the first truly independent company to come yeah. out of the north. Um, it was pioneering. Though again, we, you don't realise you're doing it at the time. You just <laughs> yes. do it. Um, yeah, and in some ways, I think it was easier in those days because nobody had done it. It's much easier right. than it is now for I think for for younger people to form theatre companies. And also, I wish they feel. I wish they didn't feel they had to form companies. Right. Certainly form a company, but uh, you know, having to get a base of administration that sort of thing together. Yeah. Don't do that. Just yeah. put put all the money into the work. Don't bother with the get other companies to, to help you and mentor you with that sort yes. of thing. So, yeah, no, we, we, we started Cherubang and we, we only intended to do the first one, Lay Up Your Ends, and then it was so successful, we just kept going. So Were you consistently surprised by the success or after a while you go, no, do you know what, actually, we know what we're doing here, this is great, and then you start to dream bigger for it? Yeah, and we, we, were, we were amazed by the success. I mean, a year after we started, I remember turning around to Mary and we're looking at each other and going, we're in Red Square. We're in Red Square. A year ago, we had a, a Rover's assorted biscuit tin for an entry, and now we're in Red Square. I mean, how did this happen? This is extraordinary. Touring the States, and it was, it was just, it was phenomenal. We just had a scene. Uh, I think, uh, you know, particularly the Eastern Seaboard of America, was very ready for theatre from the north, right, and okay. we were women, and it just was, you know, sexy with a small s. Um, yeah, we didn't know what marketing was, but we were we were hugely marketable. Right. Okay. And I guess we wouldn't have been invited back if the product wasn't good. So of course, yeah, you know, that's. But it was the way in which we worked through doing um, primary oral based research uh, with whatever group or interest group it was we were interested in it, it, it was the most phenomenal privilege and taught me a hell of a lot and then also just the, the business of running a company I mean that gives you skills that you wouldn't normally get just as a young actress knocking about the place Talk to me then about the great benefits of being <laughs> co-artistic director of your own company yeah. being able to shape your own destiny yeah. and then talk to me about the absolute pain the arse element of it <laughs> Well I mean the benefit it is obvious it's um, it's having ownership of your own work which is why the first play in a way was so special because it was about those linen workers that they're um, they made this beautiful product but there they were in, in the house and the, the wet and whatever yeah. uh, estranged from the from the thing they finally produced you know strained they were just the means of production and I think uh, running your own theatre company at an early age gives you ownership um, gives you a lot of yeah, just pride and ownership and um, self-respect. Yeah. Self-respect. I think that's the main thing it, it, it taught us was respect for ourselves, respect for our work. Um, I don't know. I mean, I come down here. When I first came down here, people were always saying, oh, you northern women, you know, you're so bulgy. You're so... And I don't, I don't know if that's true. I think it's just anybody that's maybe had to fight their corner a bit earlier. Yeah. I don't know if it's to do with being northern or not. Yeah. Um, so that's what it gave me. It gave me confidence. It certainly gave me an idea about how theatre works in other areas because I ended up, you know, having to produce, market, even you know, stage management, which I started out in anyway. I have the hugest respect for stage management. Um, I think everybody should start out in stage management <laughs> as an ASM for a year. Um, the pain in the ass, the pain in the ass is employing other people. Um, <laughs> no, they were great. I mean, most of the time it was great. But yeah, you're right. if things are going badly on the road, you're the management, but you're also undergoing things that are going going badly, yeah. and that you got bad accommodation. You're in it too, but you're responsible for everybody else. Yeah. That's all. I mean, it's, it's it's no dreadful thing, but it can be very tiring. Yeah. And we did a lot of touring, and it was wonderful to do it. But there were a few years after it where I thought I just never want to see a suitcase again. Yeah. How important is it to bring the work that you're making out either around the country or mm -hmm. internationally? I mean, yeah. And what does that what does that then give back to you? Yeah. I mean, how much are you taking from that? How much are you learning just from interacting with other 
theatre scenes, I guess. Well, yeah. I mean, certainly in our case, uh, we would have toured a lot to international festivals that were going on at that time. That's that's enormously enriching because you get to see work from all over the world. That was enormously important for us. you know, we were in we were in Edinburgh, we were in Mayfest, we were in festivals in Canada and the States. Um, we were talking to Russian theatre critics, Russian actors, I mean, Soviets. It, it was, and seeing Soviet theatre, that was just wonderful. You know, seeing it firsthand, it's really fantastic. And learning how they rehearsed and their theatre critics talking to them. They had to train for seven years to be a theatre critic. They had to do... Can you imagine? Can you imagine? <laughs> they had to do acting classes, dramaturgy classes, stage management, lighting, everything, so that when they talked about it, they knew what it was they were talking about. It was extraordinary. Yeah. And the, you know, the six-month rehearsal process we all know about, which I yeah. find a bit mystifying. But uh, no, all that, that's deeply enriching. Um, and also, particularly, well, as far as Charabang is concerned, because the work was political, it was very yeah. important for us to take it out yeah. um, and show the voices of those Northern Ireland women on stage elsewhere and uh, talking to the audience. You didn't stop when you came off stage. Part of your... We were, well, we were very deeply serious about it all, but our mission statement went on, you know, in the bar afterwards. Really? We spent a lot of time in the bar. <laughs> well, that's not a bad thing, too, I guess. <laughs> um, and was there... I mean, was there ever a broader aim other than making I mean okay was the primary focus let's make really good theatre sure. but with that let's affect change let's give a voice to the voiceless as well I don't know about affect change that always sounds a bit I mean like ugh, yeah does theatre change the world no theatre can theatre can give somebody a moment's pause an individual change and it can certainly be part of a movement but I'm you know I'm, I'm not going to go and say we changed I don't think we brought about the Northern Ireland peace, peace process or whatever it's now called well, geez, everyone else has claimed responsibility yeah I know well well mind, mind you as soon as peace broke out I came down here to see what I could do <laughs> and it doesn't seem to have gone too well actually maybe I should have stayed where I was <laughs> well okay well then talk to me then uh, maybe broadly about, like you said, kind of dodging the kind of the standard model of a career path for mm. a young actress in her twenties, kind of yeah. thirties, whatever else. Mm. Then moving away from that, I don't know whether it's a security blanket or even just a framework to have. Yeah. What is it like then striking out then again as a, as a standard as a everyday freelance, freelance actor practitioner? Yeah, that took a couple of years to turn around because everybody saw me as an AD in Charabang, so right. it took a while to say, oh no no no, I'm a freelance actress. But I just, I think when you talk to most people, they say I was very lucky and I did have two huge pieces of luck. I mean, the main one was Jim Sheridan cast me in The Boxer. God bless the man. I'm grateful eternally forevermore. And that was a huge bang. Yeah. Um, and then um, when Frank McGuinness wrote the barbaric comedies, um, more barbaric than comedic, to be honest, <clears throat> I got cast in that, and, and that too was very lucky because it was um, straight into the to the National Theatre, but also with the, I think there were 26 in the cast, I yeah, think, and all age levels. Yeah. So, you know, I'm suddenly I'm sharing a dressing room with Joan O'Hara, and, and, and just wonderful. Yeah. So it was a huge end to several generations of the Irish Theatre at once, and your grandmother. Yes, of course. I mean, just, you know, going out for dinner with Ronnie in Edinburgh, that was hilarious. <laughs> we had a great time. So that was, that was a deep, that was a great privilege, you know, it really right. was, yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, I guess the two of those then kind of just eased that process into kind of... Certainly did, yeah. Yeah, and also straight out of Charabang, the main thing that, that, that would have brought me down to Dublin was as soon almost as Charabang wound up, Lynn Parker jumped on Carol Moore and I because she'd always wanted to do Pentecost, her right. Uncle Stuart's great play. And she'd always thought of Carol and I as Marion and Lily, so it was nearly as soon as we were out, she went great and grabbed us and brought us down. And that was a that was a, a very well received production, and it went on the theatre festival. So that helped. Yeah, Lynn's helped. See, there's Lynn 
Parker coming up again. Every single episode. The ubiquitous <laughs> Lynn Parker. Well, she's just been so influential. She across has. The episode. Bless oh, her so heart. Brilliant. Uh, yes. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm a massive fan. <laughs> Dr. Lynn, sorry. Do- Dr. Oh, Lynn yes, Parker. Yes, mm. yes, formal, formal address at yeah. all times. So then, let's talk a bit about, uh, well, you've mentioned the boxes, so I wouldn't mind talking a little bit about screen work as well, mm-hmm. and about approach and how the approach differs. Mm. I mean, in terms of, well, or you, or you can take it back to the theatre, I mean, what is your process to being the awesome actress that you are? <laughs> how, in the words of Ricky Gervais and Extras, and I take drugs. how do I take you drugs. act so well? Drugs, drugs is the thing. <laughs> Uh, yes, I find if you're out of your head every night, it really helps to free the imagination up. I don't know what the process is. I only know that I remember being up for a th- uh, sorry for a film audition in ninety, oh, just before I left Charabang, I think, or just after, um, and it was for a reasonably big part. And part I'd met the director, and we got on very well together, and he said, "Well, come down because we're going to kind of workshop stuff." And I thought, "Great, fine." Came down to Dublin and. Uh, I went into the room and I was sitting in the chair and the lovely late Mary Selway is a wonderful casting director now sadly not with us any longer opposite me and, and was rooting for me and this guy just pressed some buttons and whatever I, I could see Mary, you can't see me because I'm, I'm, I'm not on screen <laughs> but I could see Mary's, I looked at Mary and her eyes were doing this thing of like sit up, sit up and I realised that I'd slumped down into my chair completely I went oh my god and I sat up and said okay well go outside we're going to bring somebody else in and I went outside and there was an older woman sitting there subsequently I now know was Britta Smith right. again no longer with us late lamented and she was sitting there I went out and I thought oh, I can't do this I can't do this I can, you know, I can cut it at this stage but I, I just I can't crack this film thing I, this camera terrifies me I just little eye looking at me and I don't know what it was but I just said to her I said I don't think I can do this that she was nobody else in the room and I just went I can't do this thing I can do theatre I can't do this and Britta just looked up and she said I'll tell you something you know the way when you walk into a room and there's a guy there that you fancy he's the only person in the room that you won't look at but you will play everything for him <laughs> and she just told the right girl the right thing and that made total sense to me and it was the best piece of advice I was ever given by anybody I thought oh, I know what you mean yeah. So it, and then I grew to love the camera to just be aware that it's looking at you that you're talking to somebody else but, and it's good for women because we've got peripheral vision so you know you're just aware that you're doing that for them all the time and the, the great thing is just people think I've seen some actors on screen who've taken that thing on board. You don't do anything and you go, well, no, you have to think. Yeah. You do have to think. And the eyes are very important and all that sort of stuff. So it is just thinking. But then I do find more and more on stage, just thinking helps as well. So, you know, I'm not sure what the difference is. When you're approaching a part, even on stage, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to give the most truthful and honest performance possible? Are you trying to create an entire new character that walks a certain way, talks a certain way, feels a certain Mm. way? A combination of all of the above? Are you just trying to connect with an audience, deliver a message? Because I don't know the answer to any of these questions. Well, there's not one thing, I suppose. When you start out, what you're trying to do is find out what the playwright wants you to do um, to get to the truth of whatever it is they're talking about. I generally find that once, it, once you kind of get in the lines under your belt, that once I start saying them and reacting, I will find my body going into certain positions. Right. And you think, oh, right, that's interesting. That's how she looks. Yeah. That's how she walks. Um, that, I, don't, I know that just seems to happen. Um, it's, it's not putting on a funny walk or anything yeah. like that, but I do find that, um, that once you're hitting... I mean, for instance, um, Connell directed a production of... Um, 
Owen McCafferty's the scene, scenes for a big picture in Belfast a few years ago, which was a very happy production. Um, I played a woman who's the mother of one of the disappeared, right. and she has one scene, it's a fantastically written scene, where her husband is on stage, but they're, they're on a phone line to each other, and he's basically saying they find the body. And it's that thing, once you have the lines down, and you're just sitting there, and I'm listening to Neil Cusack, who was opposite me, who was wonderful, and I'm on this phone and he's telling me and I have the phone to my ear and I had the, the flex, you know, the old fashioned yeah. flex round around my finger. And I'm in the middle of this, having got the lines under and I suddenly realize my hand is uncontrollably shaking. And it's that odd thing while I'm in the middle of it going, oh, yeah, oh, that's interesting. And it's not that you make that happen every night. It's just that you recreate the, the symptoms that made yes. that happen. And I thought that's that's what happens to her. She starts shaking. It's just that little bit, which means you don't have to cry because your body's showing it in another way. Yeah. And I suppose to be constrained in emotion, the most powerful emotions are those that are constrained. Um, I know certainly when I did Pentecost for the last time there, and I played Lily this time, not Marion. And Lily has a very emotional speech. And, you know, Lynn's thing was always quite rightly, do not cry. You know, I kept crying every time I did it in rehearsal. But That's you've got to master that and say, do not cry, because if you don't cry, then the audience can. Yeah, yeah. That, it's as simple as that. You know, let, let, the, let the script do it for you. Um, uh, and now it's it's very technical. I mean, even Mrs. De Borkic I'm playing now, I mean, she goes through a, a wild gamut of emotions. <laughs> That's certainly but true. I come off the stage every night and skip up the stairs like a lilty, you know. And, you, and you, I used to have to feel everything absolutely, totally, and I, I don't anymore. A right, lot of okay. it can become technical. Like, and I don't see it as a cheat. On, on, on film, you have to be incredibly truthful because, A, you don't get as much rehearsal. Yeah. B, the camera's right up your mush, but in theatre... You, you need to communicate in a different way and you need to communicate night after night after night so it better be technical guys because yeah. it just ain't gonna if it doesn't happen for you you'll start beating yourself up about it theatre's harder yeah theatre's much harder it is, it really more, is. is it more rewarding? Uh, not financially <laughs> I don't know I, 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 I wouldn't dream of saying I am no major film star God knows I have never had to do that thing where I was on every day all yeah. day I've been lucky enough to get supports and cameo and that sort of thing, which is lovely because you don't bear the responsibility and you can watch what's going on. Yes. And you will very often get a day off to, to do your own prep. I remember going down after the boxer. I mean, Jim is wonderful to work with because he loves actors. And you're also, we were in the middle of this huge American production. Yeah, I mean, that to be thrown into that was amazing. <laughs> Again, with a cameo, no responsibility. And you'd be, Jerry McSorley and I would be doing a scene and Jim would go, that's great, show me something else, just keep going, just keep going. And he'd just keep this thousands of dollars worth of equipment turning <laughs> over on you and I thought, this is going to be the rest of my life, this is going to be fantastic. Um, and then that finished and I got cast in a BBC Sunday night drama, Falling for a Dancer. And yeah, fairly meaty scenes. And on the first day we were there doing a scene and he went, right, fine, we turned it over, we did it again. He said, that's fine. And I went, what? No rehearsal and Dermot Crowley subsequently a dear friend said to me welcome to television darling. <laughs> and you better do your prep because yeah. you ain't going to get rehearsal so you better do it on your own by yourself and bring something to show the and director to be ready to hit the deck yeah running. hit the deck running yeah you talked a little bit earlier about um kind of being involved in that kind of feminist movement earlier mm -hmm. on how do you see the role of women in Irish theatre now? Do you think women are in a good place? Do you think maybe there still aren't the parts being written for them? Mm. What do you think? I think things have improved, um, which is a great joy to me because otherwise the last 33 years would have been a waste of time. <laughs> women in theatre also includes 
<coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that's those honey roast cigarettes. <laughs> <coughs> women in theatre also includes uh, the women who work in administration and uh, the direction and that sort of thing, and that has hugely improved. Look at the number of uh, women directors we have, lighting designers, designers. Um, there are women all over theatre admin. At the head of the Arts Council at the moment as well. Indeed, at the head of the Arts Council. Not at the head of any of our major producing theatres. Uh, theatre companies, yes, but not no, not the Abbey or whatever. It's, it's been a while. Gary was the only one. Well, Lilia Doolin. See, everybody forgets about Lilia. <laughs> and that's a dangerous thing to do because she's the most... I, you should do a podcast with Lilia. That's a woman now. Somebody we shall seriously Somebody needs to do that. a documentary about Lilia Doolin. But anyway, I digress. Uh, Yes, things have got better. Um, they still need to keep going. Um, I think I I admire my younger colleagues tremendously. It's one of the great things about theatre is you get to share a dressing room with people who are younger than you. Now, very rarely with anybody older than me, I seem to be the oldest <laughs> in every cast. Um, I think they're wonderful young women. I think they're feisty. Uh, they're articulate. They're extremely talented. Um, they're all extremely dedicated to their work. Uh, a fabulous bunch of young Irish actresses we have, and actors as, as well. Um, but I do think things are better. Uh, I think women playwrights are coming on apace. I've always found it interesting that women seem to excel in poetry and novels, but not in playwriting. Yeah. And I don't know if it's because it's a more public profession. I honestly don't know. You would need to ask Marina Carr or something yeah. that how she feels about it. But yeah, I think... And I think in the north as well, women are coming to the fore. I mean, they are running theatre companies and there are northern writers coming out. So, yeah, I I, I, th- I like to think we did something. Yeah. yeah. It, I mean, it, if you had a magic wand to improve a situation, do you think it needs much improvement from where it is now? Or if you had a magic wand, what would that magic wand do? Is there, is there one silver bullet fix? Um, well, for... For Irish theatre in general, the silver bullet fix is is um, actors learning uh, to respect themselves. Um, I think I did one thing. I did find coming down from the north, uh, we had a very strong union up there. Yeah. Um, and I had the the privilege of chairing the the, the national committee for about ten years. We had really great support coming out of Glasgow, and I came down with that um, confidence behind me. Right. That. If anything did go wrong or there was any kind of, of um, even mild dispute with the management, you didn't have to handle it. You, you knew your your rights and your, your equity representative would go in and it's yeah. not belligerent, just sort it out for you. Um, and that encouraging youngsters to come to equity meetings so they could see older actors there. And I do think it's the older actors' job to stand up for the younger ones because you're in a very vulnerable, vulnerable position. Yeah. Uh, we all are, but I think if uh, if at my age you don't fight for the younger ones, I, I you know who's going to? And I certainly had a great deal of help when I was coming up in the business, and I, it, it is a baton, and you need to pass it on. Um, so I would I would really love to see uh, actors in the Republic of Ireland as well represented as I was in the North. And do you think with possible mergers being spoken of at the moment yeah. that might happen? I would like to think so. I mean, I, greatest res- I genuinely the greatest respect for Irish equity, but you know, th- th- it's not big enough. Yeah. They can't afford to have full-time officials on it. Um, so I, I'm not quite... And they've tried very hard over the last few years to get it up and running, but I don't know if they're just sailing against the wind. Also, uh, in our branch, uh, we are now just called equity. It's not British equity, though I do have to say that to differentiate, to say UK yes, or British... The Northern Ireland and Scotland committees took that to the annual representative conference. Say, can we take this word out? Right. Because it was particularly problematic for some of our members of in the North. Needless to say, um, and our membership, our fellows, uh, took that on board. It is now simply equity. 
there are no borders in trade unionism as far as I am concerned and the relationship between these islands is somewhat different. Um, it is not a panacea for everything. You will not, if you join equity, um, suddenly have lots of work. That's not <laughs> how it happens. It just does mean that you have terms and conditions you can rely on and somebody who will be at the end of a phone. Um, it also means, for instance, there are there are benefit funds. I mean, I've had um, dear actor friends who got terminally ill and their bills were paid for the last year of their lives. Right. Um, I was myself was flooded recently. And yes, indeed. As soon as I was, um, the next morning I went on Facebook and because I'm on Facebook, one of the guys in the Glasgow office, there was a phone call saying, what do you need? Wow. You know, we've money from the benefit fund if, you, if you're not insured. That's a union. Yeah. That's a union. It's, it's, of course, your terms and conditions in the workplace, but it's also what you can expect to lessen the fear of what it is we do. And the fear is financial mm. and the fear is a lack of security. And equity can't mend that, but it can certainly help and say, you know, we understand what it means to be in your business and we're here to, to, to mitigate against the, the worst of it. Right. Yeah. We'll be seeing a lot more of you in the next little while. We're seeing you currently as Mrs. Dworka in the house yeah, the which is selling out and it's a phenomenal yes. performance and I'm not just saying that because you're in front of me. I'm only as good as my supporting <laughs> cast, darling. But also we have the big Titanic thing coming out later this year. Aye, that's right, yes. That'll be an exciting one. That'll be great. Yeah, of course she is in it as well. He's in, he's in the house. Um, yeah, oh, that was fantastic. We had an absolute blast on that. Um, Kate O'Toole and I got taken out to Serbia for a week to have hats measured, basically. Uh, that was good fun. And I get to play scenes with Derek Jacobi, which was just one of the most extraordinary things. I start, you know, watching him play in I, Claudius when I was just out of school. Yeah. And, and you're suddenly there I am clutching onto his knee and saying, now, now, and telling him off as his <laughs> wife and just saying, don't think about it. He's just another actor. Uh, it was great. And I, I think it is. People are sick of the whole Titanic thing. This is a cut above. It's, right. it's not about how the damn thing went down. It's about the social and economic conditions that created the building off this ship. And it's, it's a really good script. Excellent yeah. stuff. If people want to stay in touch with you, they can find you on Facebook. You don't do Twitter, and other than that, if they want to throw work your way, I do do away. Twitter, oh, but do nobody knows who I am on Twitter. Oh wow! <laughs> a, a mystery has been started live on the podcast. I like it. No, what's it? You have to have something where you can say whatever the hell you like politically or whatever, and nobody knows who you are. You have to have something. And that's are we going to re we won't reveal that. No, certain no, you won't. Nobody knows. <laughs> Excellent. I love it, Eleanor. That's absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for coming and having a chat with us. My pleasure. It's horrible. There you go. <laughs> So there you have it, the wonderful Eleanor Methvin. What a pleasure that was just to get to go and hang out with her as well. Because again, on this show, because we're ships passing the night, I don't actually get to spend a huge amount of time with her. Um, well, you know, in kind of day-to-day -day stuff in work. So it's lovely just to sit down and have that chat with her. Uh, and I know that uh, an awful lot of you out there will be happy that we've finally got around to, to getting Eleanor on board because uh, she's someone you guys have been asking for for a long time. And truth be told, she's someone we've been uh, dying to get on for a long time, but just for various reasons, trying to make it work over the last while has been tough. We've been in talks with Eleanor. Jesus, going back a couple months now so uh, absolutely delighted we finally could get her on the show and I, I hope you enjoyed it I think that was uh, one of our better ones so look that brings us as usual to our weekly roundup of what is going on around the country um, the Pavilion Theatre has Des Kyo in The Love Hungry Farmer by John B. Keane which is still touring around and uh, I mean I guess there might be a generation of people out there who probably haven't seen Des on stage before. And uh, and if you haven't, make it your business to. This guy is an exceptional performer, such a great actor, such a long history in the in the business, such a great career. Um, if you haven't seen him live and in the flesh, 
make sure you go and do it this time. Uh, Des is just a, a brilliant actor. You'll have a great night out there. Um, the Viking Theatre has 47 Roses, Peter Sheridan's show, um, coming back there again by popular demand. The Gate is continuing with Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, starring the awesome Owen Rowe, one of my all-time heroes. Um, Bewley's Cafe Theatre has that production of The Candidate by Gina Moxley, starring Francis Healy, the wonderful Francis Healy, which uh, I still haven't got a chance to get in and see just because it's been so hectic back and forth to Galway this week. Um, but I will definitely be getting in to see that next week. Um, and of course, that will be followed by Pocket Music with Donico D and Camille Ross. That's um, one of the show in a bag shows from the second batch of it, the year after we did Fight Night. So it's written by Gavin Costick with uh, the music from the brilliant Dennis Clossy. And uh, as far as I remember, they won the Little Gem Award, the Beauty's Little Gem Award, which we had won the previous year. So uh, if you enjoyed Fight Night, not that this is a, in any way a similar show, but you're saying, okay, I have a certain standard. This is where they are. This is one to check out. So uh, they're going into Bewley's Cafe Theatre. That's well worth checking out for the for the lunchtime slot there. Also, speaking of lunchtime slots, um, The Dubliner's Dilemma is at the New City Arts on Bachelor's Walk with Declan Gorman there. Um, that's worth checking out. And of course, it is finally here. Lunchtime Theatre is uh, exploding all over the city of Dublin and the brilliant Carl Shields and his gang have got theatre upstairs up and running. They opened uh, yesterday with uh, Perfidia there from Jimmy Murphy, which uh, got an amazing response as far as I know. Absolutely packed to the rafters. Um, so make sure you bring yourself down there and you venue get and support the guys um, who've really put themselves on the line over the last couple of years getting the whole theatre upstairs project um, going with all the setbacks that you would have heard back uh, heard about back in Carl's episode. Um, great that they finally managed to get this back up on the road with this astonishing world premiere. Um, you know, start Una Cavan and stuff. And just this is a great one to go and support. Get yourself out there, support the gang at theatre upstairs. Um, as we move around, the new theatre has a free reading of a play um, this Saturday, uh, and that's about Charlie Chaplin meeting Jim Larkin. Now that's a premise alone that should get you in. And you know, like we say, it's great that it's uh, it's free. So there's uh, every chance you get into go and support that one. Um, the Ten Days in Dublin Festival is kicking off, uh, and as part of that, John Curvin and Little Room will be doing Future is Blank, which looks very interesting indeed. All the information on that and the whole festival you will find at 10daysindublin.ie. Um, Smock Alley has Heroin for Breakfast and also has their new production of Playboy of the Western World happening there. And of course, our National Theatre, the Abbey Theatre, has the house. Um, now, as a word of warning, I can't remember the last show we did that wasn't sold out. Um, I think the last seven or eight eight or nine of the shows have been completely sold out um, and and oftentimes no tickets available at all on the door on the night so if you are planning to come along it is already ridiculously heavily sold for uh, for all remaining performances if you're thinking about coming along don't leave it any longer as in genuinely don't leave it another day or two longer because you may well not have any availability on the night that you want to come or you may just not have any availability whatsoever if you want to come in and see us and you know okay you've heard the hype about it it's not just me banging on about it every week the reviews have been through the roof the, the response kind of throughout the theatre community and the theatre going community has been um, insanely positive I don't think any of us in the cast have come across anything like it in any show we've ever done before so uh, if you want to come and see this production go and book your tickets now because they won't be there next week you'll be crying and i won't be able to help you out um as we move around the country um to kilkenny and devious theater are ramping up with their plans for night of the living dead that's going to be kicking off i think in three weeks time i already have my tickets booked for the opening night which i'm very excited about traveling down to see um and so if it's a show that you're thinking about getting down to maybe now start having to think about what night would suit you during that 
that week if you're going to make plans to travel to Kilkenny. And the trip to Kilkenny is a very brief one. I think it's something like an hour and 15 now from Dublin, which is not bad at all. As we move south down to Cork, the Kinsale Arts Festival is kicking off um, with lots of wonderful stuff down there, including the Text Messages Festival that you might remember me talking about a couple of months back when I was in directing Romeo and Juliet for them. Um, that is happening as part of the festival down there. They're taking down a, a couple of shows that they did. Obviously, I'm tied up and can't make it. Um, but uh, also as part of that, and as part of that kind of mini Shakespeare festival with text messages, there's a couple of workshops that uh, that they're running there as well, with hosted by Valerie O'Connor, who is just a phenomenal mind when it comes to Shakespeare. Um, she knows his work inside out and, uh, and can give an amazing insight, an amazing performer when it comes to Shakespeare as well. Valerie is someone I would happily spend as long as I possibly could with in a room working with Shakespeare. So Valerie is doing a workshop and also the brilliant Con- Connor Hanratty is doing another workshop down there as well, two separate ones. Um, so if you are in the Cork area or within an easy commute of Cork for the Kinsale Arts Festival, I would say definitely get down to try and uh, sample some of that. All the details there will be at kinsaleartsfestival.com. Um, as we are also on the road and moving around, Company D are back on the road with Oleana. Uh, they're up in Bangor this weekend and will be down to Kilkenny actually next weekend. Up to Belfast, the Lyric Theatre still has that production of The Importance of Being Earnest with Paddy Scully and Ailey Simmons up there. Uh, that's at the Lyric, and my parents actually went up to see it uh, last weekend and absolutely adored it. I thought it was a fantastic production. And Paddy is, by all accounts, absolutely astonishing in that role, so I'm, uh, I'm sorry I won't get up to see it. Uh, and also, intriguingly, here's a little thing of something else that might be coming down the road. Nick Dunning's book, Peak Performance for Actors, is nearing completion. Now, ordinarily, you hear about people talking about, oh, I'm going to write a book about acting or I've developed developing a new method of training or a new acting system and you kind of go yeah okay that might be nice but what have you ever done? Well, you don't need me to tell you what Nick Dunning has done. So um, this could be really interesting. I'm not sure when it's heading for publication, but Nick is putting this together and I, for one, am massively excited about it. I think it could be a really interesting um, look at the kind of career as an actor, not just about how you go about doing it day to day, but also kind of looking at that whole career arc and how you go about surviving in the business. Uh, you know, it's interesting to hear Eleanor talk about it earlier on. It's not just about what you do on stage on the night. It's about how you get the in the first place. It's about how you sustain yourself when you're not getting the gigs. Uh, and I think uh, Nick's book could be really very interesting indeed. So I'm looking forward to that one. So look, that is us. It is late at night. I need to get some amount of sleep before I go on set filming in the morning. So that's episode 35 in the books. We will, of course, be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers. This has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. For Angus Og McAnally, I'm Angus Og McAnally. We'll see you next week. Thank you.